Good evening, listeners. It is the 23rd of October, 2016, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just over 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm DJ Lily Inferno. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study, and here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and link to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Amy Massey from the College of Agricultural Sciences. Say hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. How about you let us know uh, what program you're in and uh, who your major advisor is? All right. I'm in the uh, Department of Fisheries and Wildlife, and I specialize in wildlife sciences. Um, and I work primarily with Dr. Tall Levy. Tall Levy. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, you're on a PhD, correct? Right. Yeah. I'm in the third year of my PhD. I just started. Awesome. Okay. So how about you let the listeners know uh, what it is you're going to do with this magical PhD? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the magic started, I guess, a little while ago, <laughs> two years ago. Um, I came in on a project focused on um, disease and wildlife interactions in tropical ecosystems. And this took me to the Brazilian Amazon, where I started my field work my first year. Your field work. Okay. So can you tell us more about that field work you did while you were in Brazil? Yeah, so the first year I was there for six months, um, transitioning wow. from yeah the wet to dry season there. Um, so we saw all sorts of climates. Um, what you'd expect maybe when you go into a tropical rainforest, it started out really wet um, inside and outside the forest. And then as the months progressed, it got really dry, desert-like. And so you could see the um, contrast between um, the city life in the forest, which was much more humid and still tropical, but everyone outside it was more like a desert there. Okay. So, yeah. So what, um, when you say field work, um, mm -hmm. what, side of, what sort of data were you trying to collect? So um, where I was in Brazil uh, is what we call a patchwork landscape of agriculture and rainforest. So 40 years ago, it was all primary rainforest. Um, untouched, there was no humans there. Um, or no settlement there, at least. And then um, people started to come in to um, do monoculture, mostly soybean, um, some cattle, but mostly soybean. And so you have this very regular uh, patchwork landscape of soybean fields and then rainforest in between. And closer you are to the city, um, it's more dominated by the soybean fields because that was what was cultivated first. And as you move away from the city or northwards in Brazil, uh, you still have the large tracts of primary rainforest that have not been touched yet. Okay. Um, now, when you say patchwork, mm -hmm. uh, can you give me a sense of size? Like, are we talking about a football field, a classroom size of these, you know, soybean monocultures? Like, what's the scale that we're talking about? Right. So um, closer to the, the city that I was in, um, the I guess the patches, the forest patches could be anywhere from like the size of the Oregon State campus here. Um, and same with the soybean um, 
monocultures. They would be they could be as you know big as the campus as well. And then as you move away from the city, the soybean patches become smaller and the rainforest patches become bigger. So you know like the size of Rhode Island maybe even. Yeah. That's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you can Did imagine you say the size of Rhode yeah. Island. Hold yeah. on, can you? Can I hear that again? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but if you think about large animals that need the space, that's probably towards the minimum of what they need for a range space. So. And let's talk about that. You're mm-hmm. primarily interested in animals that are yep. kind of us- utilizing these either rainforests or soybeans, right? Right. So, um, utilizing, yes, in a sense, or that were just there first, basically. So. If you think about a balanced ecosystem, you have like the top predators, um, and in Brazil, and in the Amazon, this would be like jaguars, um, mostly is what people can think of. Um, And then from there, you know, you get smaller body sizes, and you kind of go down this trophic pyramid where you have fewer jaguars, and they take up more resources and more space. And then towards the bottom of the pyramid, you might have, you know, your plants and your small mammals and your insects, and there's millions of them, um, but they take up less space individually and less resources. So um, then what are some of the benefits or drawbacks of having maybe more animals in that lower trophic level, say a lot of little mammals and rodents and stuff? like what's Right. So what we were studying um, and still ongoing is if you get down to these small patches of rainforest and you potentially lose your large predators, your large-bodied mammals, um, what happens to the other trophic levels? And One of the things that's been shown um, in other ecosystems is that you have um, your smaller mammals or meso-sized mammals, um, and this goes for other taxa besides just mammals, but that's what I was studying mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, They explode a lot in population because they don't have their natural predators anymore, and a lot of times their ecosystem is being subsidized with external resources. So you could think of this as like soybean or corn. Or... So that's like a readily available food mm-hmm, source that mm-hmm. is now just a little candy there for them. Right. And so especially at the edge when you're driving, when we were driving um, between the soybean patches and the forest patches, you know, usually there's this dirt road for access for farm vehicles. You would see monkeys, um, armadillos. You would see everything cross the road. Yeah. So Why did the armadillo yeah, right. cross the road? Right. And so, yeah, it was just... Um, that's where we saw a lot of our wildlife were at these edges because they would use the, the agriculture. Mm-hmm. So how are you able to tell, like, what sort of technique did you use to determine what sort of wildlife would be found in one patch over another? Right. So this is what the really cool part of the project and what separated it from other field work or other research um, was that we are using insects, uh, specifically blood-biting insects or blood-feeding insects. Ouch. Yeah. So what mosquitoes, nothing too glamorous, mosquitoes and sandflies, which in the U.S. we think of as like gnats or black flies. Um, and in the U.S. we typically think of these things as just annoyances. Yeah, and they're definitely <laughs> annoying down there too, but <laughs> um, their numbers can get uh, quite large just because of the climate. Um, it's really a breeding ground for insects, and so they do really well there. Um, and so it was an Um, we would say a non-invasive approach to wildlife monitoring. So we are collecting these insects and using uh, DNA profiling to profile what they had eaten. Um, So you could think of like one large pool. So if we collected a thousand mosquitoes at a site, uh, for example, um, anything that those 1,000 mosquitoes had eaten, we could potentially profile using molecular methods later on. So then, okay, so... 
So you're using mosquitoes to essentially identify which animals are there and then mm-hmm. maybe in what quantity. But, you know, what are the other methods? You know, would you put out cameras and yeah. traps? And, you know, what what's the efficacy of those compared to using, you know, mosquitoes like another, another animal? Right. So um, a lot of people have argued that using this method is a little less biased than some of our traditional methods, whereas, like you said, camera traps or you could walk transect lines if, after you've made trails or you could do um, pitfall trappings for small mammals. But all this requires kind of a lot of human intervention um, and bias along the lines that um, you are going to be using the trail, so you're going to pick you know, ease of access and where you can get to. So this is more, um, well, we're hoping that um, it's a more representation of the patch because those mosquitoes could come from anywhere in the patch and they normally follow the animals. Hmm. Um, and I guess if you were out there trying to set traps or cameras or, you know, uh, fall pits, is that what they're called? Uh, pitfalls. Pitfalls. Yeah. Okay, pitfalls. You know, you're kind of putting your scent everywhere. Yeah. You know? So then is yeah. it possible that other animals would avoid you? Or if they hear you, then they would just avoid you anyway, so you're not counting them? Right, and especially in the Amazon. Like, I've done a lot of field work places, and they say, you know, everything in the Amazon is evolved to kill you, basically. Oh. Um, because everything is – there the um, ecosystem is so specific and it changes so quickly that um, each species is very adapted for where they are. And so their senses, you'll never see, you know, wildlife when you're walking in the Amazon. They'll always see you first, smell you first, hear Mm. you first. Um, And so anytime that we happened upon wildlife, it was because we surprised it. And that's not a very good thing. (laughs) You wouldn't want that anyways. So (laughs) do you have any specific encounter stories of anything alarming <laughs> yeah there's a few um the this the most scared i was with my uh field partner we were walking um in the middle of the forest maybe about a mile into a patch and all of a sudden we heard okay, this is this is a patch of forest right? yes a patch of forest okay, so, so there's had, like green green vines oh and, yeah know, it's like tough to see places because mm-hmm. it's so thick okay yeah um and we could see a little bit because we had made trails so you know it you could see about 10 feet ahead of you. That's um, not very much. Still. No, it's not. <laughs> it, yeah. Everything moves in very quickly in the Amazon. So even if you make trails, you, it can cloud over pretty quickly. But anyways, we were on this trail about a mile into uh, the forest patch. And uh, me and my partner, we hear like pitter patter, which I thought were almost human sounding feet. And I was like, there's no way some human can be out here on our trails um, and if they are, it's probably not very good for us. But <laughs> and so we hear these sounds coming towards us, and um, and then we see like this blackish cloud also coming towards us from the same direction as the sound. Wait, did you say a black cloud? Mm-hmm. So yeah, from the forest floor to the, you know as far as we could see up, maybe like ten meters, um, everything was covered in black. And then this what? extended about thirty meters, like. As far as we could see laterally, there was this black cloud. It sounds like Lost. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a black oh, yeah. cloud character <laughs> in Lost that kind of creeps up on people. Okay, so what the heck was this thing? It was millions and probably bi- billions of army ants coming towards us. Oh. And so army ants are really interesting in that the queen will send them out at millions at a time, and they almost attach to each other to move as like one entity. And anything oh. that moves, they devour and eat and bring back to the... That's crazy. Yeah. And so me and my partner ran. We ran out of the woods. You had to actually run. Mm-hmm. But these are only ants. Right. And so we came back the next day and all our traps, anything that we had set up, the tape, the string, any rubber, it was all gone. 
So That's there was crazy. no trace left over. Yeah. And I think there's a photo example on the blog. Yeah, yeah. definitely check that out. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. A, a really cool or maybe sad photo yeah. of, of Amy holding up a trap that looks destroyed. Yeah, Eden? and that was actually Shoot. not army ants. That was a different type of ant, a lesser oh. evil type yeah. of ant. So, oh, wow. um, can you tell us more about those traps? Because that's how you caught the ants. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm sorry, caught the mosquitoes, right? Right, so. yeah. So um, we are using a pretty standard um, trap for this method. It's called a CDC light trap. And um, these what does CDC stand for? Uh, well, Center of Disease Control. They make okay. these traps. Um, and so the mosquito or the sandfly would be attracted to this UV light at the top of the trap. And um, as they get closer to the trap, they get sucked down by a fan into like this container. And that's what I collect every day. I switch out the containers. Um, and and they're, they're still alive, right? They're yeah. still intact? They're definitely still alive because um, we want them alive as long as possible so their DNA doesn't degrade on us. Um, and so we take them alive and then freeze them. Um, and that's how we preserve the DNA so that I can extract both their DNA, if you want species list of what insects you have, um, what type of sandflies, what type of mosquitoes, and then also their blood meals, which contain you know the wildlife information. So you're doing that analysis here back at OSU. Right. I'm trying to. So I've been working for six months to get these permits to get the mosquito samples back here. Oh, yeah. Shipping Um, live materials from a different continent is probably very difficult. Yeah. Well, now they're dead. But just because they are insects and potential disease vectors, that's why um, you have to deal with, you know, the CDC. But... Um, yeah, so once I get them back here, we'll do most of the molecular work um, in conjunction with the CGRB. Uh, they have a machine here that... And what is CGRB? Uh, oh the boy. Center for Genomics and Biologic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, geez. I used to know this. Oh, shucks. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. We'll I... come back to that. <laughs> but, you know, before we get too far deep into um, exactly what or how you analyze your results for mm-hmm. your research to figure out, you know... But what are the effects of these um, of, of, of these soy plantations in the Amazonian rainforest? Uh, you had mentioned that you this isn't your first rodeo. You have been to lots of other field sites, right? Yeah. So I'd I'd love for you to kind of take a step back and you know tell us how you actually got interested in science in the first place. Okay, well, um, I think like a lot of grad students, uh, I love to learn, and that was um, kind of the fun part of going off to undergrad. Um, so I try a lot of things, but pretty quickly um, honed in on uh, biology. Um, I also really loved chemistry, and um, this kind of led me towards applying to med school, which... So you were going to be a doctor? Yeah, well, for a hot second, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I did all the test prep and took the exams and did the application, but I don't know if my heart was ever into it. And so when I um, got the chance my junior year to do this uh, kind of random field course through the University of Maine where I went to undergrad, um, I did it not really thinking too much about it. And we went to the Panamanian rainforest. And uh, when I got there, I was just blown away. I mean, I'm from New England. I'm from a lot of nature. And I've always appreciated um, the outdoors. And I love animals. But this was just, you know, kind of the really special experience that a lot of people don't have, you know, or kind of that pinnacle moment. And so once I got back from that, um, I threw away my med school applications and <laughs> acceptance letter and applied to grad school instead um, and did my master's at University of Michigan. 
And oh. if you're just tuning in, you're listening to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. Uh, we're speaking to Amy Massey. She's in the college or in the in the fisheries and wildlife mm-hmm. program, and she's describing to us exactly how she got here to Oregon State, and she decided. Nope, no med school for me. I decided to go to grad school instead. So uh, tell us about that decision. Yeah, so um, like I said, I started off, you know, loving nature, loving animals, and had done pretty well in school. So um, decided to try my luck at the University of Michigan in their master's program. Uh, And I chose there because uh, one of the professors I was speaking to had this project starting in Kenya. And I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to love it, this is going to be the place I'm going to love it. So um, I went to Kenya uh, at in Laikipia, Kenya, at the Impala Research Station, um, and I ended up doing my master's work there, um, looking actually at very similar stuff, um, studying large mammal population declines in a national park there. That's awesome. Yeah. So after you got your, you completed your master's degree, mm-hmm. what did you have in mind that you wanted to do after that? Well, I loved the work I did at the University of Michigan, but um, I knew going forward if I was to do a PhD, I wanted to really kind of hone in on um, building my skill set for both science but like conservation work because I really loved that component of research, how it was on the ground and management focused and working with communities. Um, And uh, Tal, my advisor, uh, Tal Levy, he's kind of the rock star at combining quantitative methods molecular methods and using really sound innovative science to tackle huge like conservation issues Um, and that was you know part of this Brazil project is that it was you know called rapid biodiversity assessment we could sample a landscape in a year basically a whole ecosystem um, which is pretty unheard of and really important for ecosystems that are facing um, rapid human development so that was one of the Okay, so the rapid component, that is the the collection of like a huge number of flies. Right. And the method you use to uh, analyze their DNA, is that? Yeah, so it was mostly field collection. So if you set camera traps or you do transects, that's going to involve, you know, a lot of um, time at each site. So each patch is a site, we say. Um, whereas for the mosquito collection or the insect collection, um, I did three trap nights. And then I was done uh, one site. So we did 40 sites in two years, which is which is pretty good. So it moves quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then because if not, you would have to stay out at those sites for multiple nights within a season. But this right. way you're able to really capture uh, that you're able to capture the heterogeneity within the site with a much smaller time frame. So the number of locations you're able to measure and hopefully, you know, extrapolate out is a lot stronger with this method. Right, and so that was, you know, that's the thought. Like, by comparison, camera traps is pretty popular for wildlife, um, non-invasive sampling, and, you know, you could do up to 40 nights at a site um, before you can really gather, um, you know, enough information. Um, So this is a lot different. And, you know, actually, it might help our listeners to uh, tell us a little bit about what a more standard uh, maybe animal or ecological monitoring uh, kind of system looks like, uh, especially with some of your time in Kenya. Like, what, oh, yeah. what, what was your experience there? Well, that was also not very typical, <laughs> um, <laughs> only because it was the pilot season of a project they were starting. So it was like their first go um, for the University of Michigan in Kenya. Mm. And they want to establish a presence at this research station. Um, and so it was really more of like, what can we do here um, 
to do good work in the communities, but also good science. Um, and so that work uh, was also disease ecology related um, and large mammal conservation related. Um, so when I was in Kenya, I was mostly tackling cattle and camels and goats to take blood samples. Wait, not literally? Mm-hmm. L- literally tackling? Yeah, so we had to use <laughs> lassos on camels, <laughs> so that was fun. Um, Amy Massey, many skills. Yeah. I'm still learning more skills that, that <laughs> I didn't know before. <laughs> I know, yeah, so I mean that... It was an amazing experience because I didn't have as much um, like responsibility or logistical control over that project. It was, you know, a master's you're kind of thrown in for that one summer of intense research. Um, And so it was a lot of fun. You just kind of did whatever they told you and collected the data and um, had fun. So, yeah. So did it on your uh, Ph.D. project in Brazil, Mm -hmm. um, you had more control over that in terms of like actually leading the project, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean, that was probably most of my time spent was, you know, working out logistics. Um, It took me nine months just to get my visa to go down there uh, because I was on a special research visa because I was staying more than three months. Um, Yeah, and then scheduling and trying to figure out uh, field teams. Our biggest issues were finding cars that could get into the rainforest. So Brazil doesn't (laughs) have, like, the best selection of field vehicles, um, you would think I don't I don't I don't know why we never figured out why they don't but we end up taking um oh where are they called it's it's a little box car basically and we could barely fit three people and like a day's worth of field equipment uh, everything was just busting out the windows and we it would, reminds me of a clown car at this point yeah it was a clown car we would have to like fold seats down to get people out and get things out and. Um, yeah, we have this little car going into the jungle. I don't know how many times it broke down. We got stuck once, and I had punctured the gas tank, and so we were, like, racing home before the gas oh, ran no. out, and we had no cell phone service. So, so yeah, yeah, that sort of stuff, you know, when you don't have as much money and, you know, you have a lot of students leading the projects, um, things aren't as plush, I guess. <laughs> so it sounds like a lot of the challenges were not necessarily even like research oriented. No, they were just, yeah. just like logistical challenges. Mm-hmm. Like think on your feet. You yeah. Know, constantly trying to find solutions. <laughs> yeah. 90% of our problems were logistical or resource based, uh, not field work based. So. Now, when you say resource based, is there mm-hmm. uh, one item in particular that you just couldn't find uh, in, in Brazil that was a big hindrance? <laughs> right. There are many items, but the most important was duct tape which (laughs) as a person who does a lot of field work duct tape is a pretty basic like you always use it and so when I got down there and discovered that they did not have duct tape or anything close to duct tape um, we started bringing rolls and rolls anyone who came to Brazil to visit didn't matter if you're a professor or student you were bringing three rolls of duct tape with you well, why don't why don't you just bring like ten rolls of duct tape? You know, just bring a lot so that. So way... anytime you bring over a few things of the same thing into Brazil, they think you're trying to smuggle and set up like a shop to sell your your items. And so I got <laughs> caught the first time trying to bring in some wildlife cameras, um, which were fine because I was on a research visa and they were part of my research. But 
Um, customs doesn't really understand that, especially Brazilian customs if you're a young American and don't speak the language. So um, it was easier just to have multiple people come to Brazil and bring duct tape. But Well, the next time you need somebody to come to Brazil, let me know. I would be happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most people didn't turn down the offer. So. <laughs> but. So this wasn't your only experience in the field. I'd like to, to take a quick tangent mm -hmm. and go to the time in between your master's and PhD. Did you immediately decide like, yep, totally want my PhD. I'm going to, I'm going to run for the Hills and go for it. Or was there some in-between thoughts there? Right. Um, I think the in-between time was more because of the, um, schedule of my master's. It took me more than two years to finish, uh, to write my master's. Which is not uncommon for you listeners. Right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't a bad thing. It gave, I love the year off. Um, I worked at UNH as a researcher, um, in a small mammal lab. And UNH is? A University of New Hampshire. So I'm originally from the East coast and, uh, it was amazing to work, you know, a job, a 30 hour a week job and, Kind of have that time off where you're not thinking about science all the time. You got to shut off your brain for a little bit every day. Uh, but eventually, um, I always knew I was going to be trying for my PhD. And so um, I talked to a bunch of people and um, talked a lot to Tall, who... And Tall's um, your major professor now? Right, yeah. Okay. So he is most of the reason I chose to come to Oregon. Um, what was your ex first experience with him? Oh, he, he's just so crazy. So... I was all nervous. Um, we had this phone call date set up, and I call him, and he was like, oh, you know, I'm actually in Alaska, and my infant daughter is running towards a bee, and I get to, like, chase her, but, like, keep talking. And so <laughs> that was my first experience with Tall, and, and it rings true. You know, his you know, personality definitely always shines through, and he's uh, very relaxed but very passionate about science. And so that really drew me um, – to Oregon State and to his lab. And so that spring, he, um, I had gotten into this program, and he was like, why don't you just come to Alaska for two months, and I'm starting a research project there, and just come hang out. So I <laughs> stopped my research <laughs> job at UNH, because I would have eventually anyways for my PhD, Yeah, and went and spent two months with Tall and his wife and his child and his dog, in Haynes, Alaska. <laughs> wow. And then uh, very briefly, what, what exactly uh, were you doing in Alaska? Were you just like fishing, looking for bears and stuff? or what was uh, going Basically, on? yeah. So <laughs> uh, Tall had a pilot money for a Nat Geo-sponsored project looking at um, bear and, well, mostly this um, fish runs that come through this part of Alaska and the marine and terrestrial mammals that they bring in, with bears being a huge component. It's like largest congregation of um brown bears in this area and so they all come down and feast on these fish runs um eagles orcas stellar sea lions um both types of bears wolves and so it's this huge congregation of wildlife that you don't really have in the u.s anymore um, except in kind of like the wilds of alaska and so it was awesome that yeah. sounds like an incredible experience yeah it was so so now you've done you know uh field work from Wow, literally all over the place, mm -hmm. like from from the cold from the cold cold mm -hmm. summers of Alaska to the warm tropics mm -hmm. of uh, and so with that said, you know what what have you learned so far, and where do you hope to take your current research? Um, what I've learned so far, I guess, is that there's work to be done everywhere. Um, you know, some of these systems don't have as much wildlife left. They've definitely been altered um, by human development or um, 
even just by natural development. But the tropics, I think um, most scientists would tell you, are most important for um, what we want to call like resource conservation. Um, but depending on your interests, you know, I'm most interested in habitat management and wildlife management. And I really think that can be done anywhere. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping one day to kind of use these skills. And that's why I really wanted a PhD that was skills based because I wanted to translate to, you know, if I ever want to get out of tropical ecosystems, maybe to go back home and use these skills. Yeah. So are you looking at more of an academic, academia focused position or more industry or what would that look like for someone in your field? Um, I love research. I would really love to continue research. Um, I would like to spend some time outside of academia. Uh, we'll see how possible that is. Usually that's your surest or most stable way to continue research. But there are a lot of, and especially in, I think in the last generation or so, a lot of uh, research institutes that are also working with universities um, or independently, but on long-term research projects, projects, which I think are most important. The long-term aspect of them is is kind of how you promote true sustainability. Right. But, can you give an example of what a dream job would be for you after you finish your PhD? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there is lots of dream jobs, which is what's great. Um, but I would love to keep wherever I end up, um, keep spending time outside if possible, keep doing the um, field work or a project from the ground up, basically, to start a project and to handle it um, year after year in the same spot and keep collecting data that way. Um, so... I think the skills that I've been looking to gain um, during this PhD translate uh, across ecosystem and region, so that that's helpful. Um, in New England, where I'm from, if I went back there, a lot of the issues they have with conservation or management um, have to do with like coastline ecosystems. Um, so the molecular work I do and the bioinformatics, which is like computer programming for um, data analysis, that could translate to you know, even a marine system, which I don't technically have, you know, the, the wildlife experience there, but the skills would be more important. So. And you're doing bioinformatics now in mm -hmm. the data analysis portion of your project. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm learning right now. And it's a okay. steep learning curve. Um, <laughs> there are experts who are definitely better than I am. But um, yeah, I think during the PhD, it's important to learn that sort of thing if, if you see the value in using it in the future. So... Um, that's what I'm trying to do this next year. Okay. Yeah. And then could you potentially, maybe this is an unfair question, but do you think you can give our listeners a shortcut up that steep hill of, <laughs> uh, of what kind of uh, maybe uh, in, interpretations you could make using uh, some of the work that you've done now? In terms um, of like, you know, could there, you know, could you say... At this patch size, mm -hmm. we expect you know right. X number of mammals to be present, which could have you know uh, a potential impact on the number of diseases present. You know, is that even possible? Oh yeah, I mean it's very possible. So we're working with people at the CGRB to get trained in. Um, oh, and the CGRB. Yes, it's Center for Genome Research and Biocomputing. Yes, I'm sorry, I can't always <laughs> remember the full acronym, but um, they're. Thank you, Lily. <laughs> They're amazing, and they're helping train both Tall and I, actually, on the bioinformatics. Um, but realistically, if I wanted the data analyzed very quickly, someone there could probably do it for me in, like, an hour or two. But here's the thing. Yeah. You want to learn the skills right. so you can transfer this to coastline ecosystems. Or, yeah, or... whatever comes in the future. And so, um, 
it's almost like if you have any experience with a statistical program like R, um, it's almost like, you know, a thousand hours or 10,000, I can't remember what the saying is, but 10,000 hours uh, makes you an expert or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're all there at the CGRB. They all <laughs> have put in their 10,000 hours, but um I wonder how many hairs pulled that is equivalent to. I've had a lot of hairs pulled. Yeah. I don't know no. about 10,000 hours. But. It's <laughs> it's crazy. You got to take it in small chunks, I think, and um, almost treat it like a homework assignment to do little parts of it because um, otherwise it is very daunting. But um, it's pretty amazing the power. I mean, and this is all like within the last, you know, since computers have been around. Because um, you need this really heavy computing power to be able right. to do the analysis that you plan on doing. Right, yeah. So we get back like billions of DNA reads um, every time we do a run on these machines. And I think that highlights an important skill that you develop in grad school, which is taking it a little bit at a time just so it doesn't become too daunting. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, speaking of, as as is always the case on this show, it does appear we have about run out of time. Uh, And, oh, geez, I wish we we can speak to you a little bit more uh, because there's we have left so much out of your story still, um, but small small chunks at a time. Right, yeah. So, you know, we expect to hear from you in the future, and I'm okay. sure we will. Uh, but for now, we do have two uh, traditions on mm-hmm. this show. And the first is we ask you to provide some advice, either to yourself in the past or to uh, undergrads or, you know, m- maybe current PhD students. So do you have any advice for our listeners? Yeah, and I think, you know, as I've thought about what to say for this um, – I think it really is, you know, doing that kind of crazy thing, um, especially for, you know, people in their early college or um, mid-20s or, you know, that time when everyone's trying to develop who they are, uh, to do that crazy thing that you don't even know if you'll like. Um, For me, it was going to Panama, which I had a feeling I would like, but I didn't realize how much it would change kind of the course. This was just a quick field course. Right. Oh, why not? Right. Yeah, and oh, why not? Um, And so I would always encourage uh, young students and young scientists to kind of do that, oh, why not? Or like, oh, yeah, I'll try it. And those opportunities, even if it's, you know, volunteering in a lab, if you can't, you know, travel abroad or do the really exotic field course, um, if you can do it, if you can't, just find another way to kind of do something um, outside your comfort zone. And yeah, it's great advice. Yeah. <laughs> I second that advice. Yeah. I did the, oh, why not? And yeah. I am here now. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of grad students <laughs> find themselves that way so and then we have uh one more tradition which Mm -hmm. is we ask you to choose a song Mm -hmm. so what song have you chosen and why have you chosen it well um because my life has been brazil for the past two years uh and the song's actually in portuguese but people will recognize it as the girl from impanina so nice and does this song have any uh particular meaning to you or is it primarily the uh the amount of time you've spent probably listening to some of joel gilberto yeah no um my friends in Brazil would probably uh, not be too impressed with this selection because it is kind of the the one that the American would choose. But um, yeah, you can't be ashamed, I guess. So uh, it just it's very popular for us, and they love um, anything to do with showing off their culture. So I think this is a good homage to that. But yeah, nice. Okay. Well, with that, we'd like to thank you for coming on well, the thank show. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. And uh, again, this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on every Sunday. Uh, Interview starts at 7. And we'd like to uh, thank Amy for coming on. And this is uh, by the artist Joel Gilberto with uh, the girl from, can you say the name? Impanima. Impanima. Okay, here it is. Enjoy.
Que coisa mais linda, mais cheia de graça Ela menina que vem que passa Um doce balanço, caminho do mar Moça do corpo dourado, do sol de Ipanema O seu 